0: Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. And they are here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Have you had a leaky roof? We did, and it was a nightmare, but through Angie, we found an amazing roofer who specialized in flat roofs, and he fixed it right and quickly. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps, or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. The app and website are both free to use. That's Angie.com.
1: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one?
0: Wow, what a pile of news today, right? (laughs) It's an amazing day. The New York Times laying it out. They've spent apparently some quality time going through 20 years of Donald Trump's income tax returns and figured out that, you know, he's a tax evading grifter. I mean, there's so much in here. I want to do a, a somewhat deep dive into this for a few minutes and, you know, just share with you what I've been able to learn about it and what I think it means, what it implies, what it, where it all goes. Then we've got a handmaiden, a member of a Catholic cult that calls its women or called its women handmaids. Handmaiden Amy is up for the Supreme Court. And we've got some new information on that. We've got some new information on the election. But let's start at the beginning. Tax evasion. Well, is it tax evasion or is it that Donald Trump is just a miserable business person, an incompetent business person? I mean, it sure looks to me like it's more the latter, although there's plenty of the former. I mean, you know, it his claiming a $72 million tax deduction in the IRS saying, oh, hold on, Donnie, not so fast. And then his living large on that money that the federal government gave to him. It's bizarre. But here's the chronology that we know. Back in the day, Donald Trump stole hundreds of millions of dollars, what in today's dollars may be a billion dollars from his father's estate. This was established two years ago in a massive New York Times investigation where they laid it all out in detail and won a Pulitzer Prize for it. His niece is suing him right now for this, for stealing this money from her father. Because he screwed not only the IRS, which is you, me, and our nation, in doing this, but he also screwed his siblings and their children. And then he took this, you know, roughly 400, 500 million bucks that he got from his daddy and went on a buying binge. He bought casinos, he bought airlines, he bought steak companies, he bought a vodka company. He had Trump-branded games, his own version of something like Monopoly. He had a fake university. He had all these companies. He bought a winery. Virtually all of them failed. So he experienced multiple bankruptcies, five or six times he had to declare bankruptcy over and over and over again. And he was wiped out. Trump was apparently, if all these reports that, you know, that, that lay this stuff out in some detail, and particularly David K. Johnson's reporting that uh, now is increasingly showing up over at rawstory.com, you know, Trump might have been on the verge of homelessness had not NBC picked him up. And he cut a deal with Mark Burnett uh, at NBC, or I guess uh, maybe Jeff Zucker was involved in that somehow, or the guy who runs CNN right now that he would get half the profits from the show. I don't think they thought the show was going to be profitable, but he ended up walking away with another $400 billion from being on The Apprentice. So he's got a new pile of money. He's rescued from bankruptcy. He gets a new pile of money, and he goes out and buys a whole bunch of new stuff again because that's what he does. He buys properties around the world, and, and oh, he cuts licensing deals in some of them. He's building things. He's, you know, mostly golf courses. Right. Scotland, Ireland, Doral. And now they're not doing so well either, in part because he's an incompetent businessman. They've been losing money for years, but also this year, particularly bad because of the virus, which might have something to do with why he's willing to kill several million Americans with his herd mentality strategy. If only they will go back to playing golf and going. I mean, this is why he's playing. He was playing golf yesterday. It's his way of saying, hey, you can do this. Go to my golf course. So now he's massively in debt again. Over $400 million in debt. He's burned through all the money from from Celebrity Apprentice and picked up a couple hundred million dollars in debt. We don't know who he owes that money to It could be Russian oligarchs. It could be uh, Saudi oligarchs. It could be Emirati oligarchs. It might be the same people who loaned Jared Kushner a billion dollars just last year, right? Who knows? But right now, what is fairly obvious is that for the second time in his life, Donald Trump is on the verge of bankruptcy. Now, when his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, hit that wall last year with his 666 Fifth Avenue property, you'll recall when his dad got out of prison and Jared was just a young pipsqueak, daddy gave Jared some advice. He said, son, buy a newspaper, buy a fancy, fancy building in Manhattan, that was a high-status building, and marry a beautiful, wealthy woman. You do those three things and you've got a ride to the top. And you will clean up the stain from daddy going to prison for fraud. And so Jared bought the, Washington, uh, the, the New York Examiner, I believe it's called. It's this obscure newspaper in Manhattan. He bought 666 Fifth Avenue and paid a couple hundred thousand dollars more for it than he should have. A couple hundred million dollars more for it than he should have. Excuse me. He paid over a billion dollars. Well, he didn't pay it. He borrowed over a billion dollars to take this building on. And he married Ivanka Trump. And, uh, you know, when the money ran out, Jared was in deep trouble, and this was before the coronavirus. He goes to the Middle East and starts begging for money, and nobody wants to give him the money. And all of a sudden, you know, Cutter controls a big investment fund, and all of a sudden, Saudi Arabia is like blockading Cutter, saying, no, you can't have food. And Cutter suddenly says, oh, you know, hey, Jared, here, have some money. Or an investment fund that's heavily funded via and through Cutter. And we don't know what role the UAE is playing in this. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, just, it's just a mess. We still don't know how much Trump and Kushner compromised American security, how much they sold us out for in exchange for that billion dollars for Jared. I'm guessing historians will figure it out. But Trump is now going to have to come up with hundreds of millions of dollars over the next three years. And the question is... Which dictator is he going to borrow it from? Has he already worked out a deal with some oligarch someplace? Does this explain why he's constantly deferring to hardcore right-wing autocrats, whether it's Vladimir Putin or Mohammed bin Salman? So a lot going on. Uh, Let's see here. Mike in Lomita, California. Hey, Mike, thanks for uh, listening to KPFK. What's up? My pleasure, Tom. Tom. You know, I'm a helpful
3: sort of fellow, so I'm suggesting short of a GoFundMe page for Trump that we could at least save him some money on hair care. According to the uh, Times story, he claimed in one year 70000 that's $70,000 for hair care as a deduction. And, you know, we could make him look like Sir Patrick Stewart, television star, or me, and save $69,990. To shave his head? Uh,
0: (laughs) I mean, he's already bald on the top, and he's got plugs across the front.
3: You know, it only takes $9 in the 99-cent store for 90 shavers and another 99-cent for a bar of soap, and that would take care of him in the year. I mean, the President looks like Madame Pompadour on crack, Uh, the effect could only be better. It sounds like he's... You know, he's as bad at spending money uh, on hair as he is on border walls, given the story on uh, 60 Minutes about how he pushed through a bunch of funding to one particular person who uh, had appeared on Fox News, whose new border wall section has been undermined by the first real rainstorm that hit it. So Right, it looks uh, like it's gonna fall over. Yeah, this guy really needs a conservator to regulate the spending of his money it seems
0: i think it goes beyond that i mean you know it's it's i think it's time to institutionalize the guy he's been a grifter and a criminal his whole entire life <laughs> it's insane mike thank you thank you spot on omar in herndon virginia hey omar what's up
4: tom thank you so much taking my call and happy safe
0: and you're uh, co-safe tom i have invented a new name for lindsey graham his new name is lindsey scam oh lindsey scam of course, that's great. Yep. I like that's it. That's a new name. Yeah, um, but regarding Nancy Pelosi, she said she has a ball or
4: something that she's going to use. She needs to need to do whatever is necessary to stop this nomination. You know, so uh, I mean, it's good that she's talking about it, but she needs to go through this nomination. You're talking about handmade and Amy. Nancy Pelosi. She said she has a. a she has here. no say in
0: it. She was speaking. She was speaking generically of the Democrats. She said, "You know, we will use all the arrows in our quiver." She's in the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives has no say in whether somebody gets put on the Supreme Court. It's entirely the Senate. Yeah. See, this is what I mean.
4: Like, but she's saying stuff. To appease us, that's not normal.
0: We didn't die straight. street that she's just making cool. If she didn't have nothing- no, I don't think she's trying to appease us. What she was saying is that the Democrats in Congress, specifically the Democrats in the Senate, are going to use everything they can, and they've already started doing that. I mean, you know, they've, they've imposed the two-hour rule for committee meetings, and they're demanding quorums, and I mean, they're they're slowing things down. But Omar, frankly, I doubt that they're going to be able to slow it down enough to stop this thing. I I think Mitch McConnell knows what he's doing. Stick around. It's the Tom Hartman. So we have a new video up over at TomHartman.com for uh, people who are signed up, and it's about how Donald Trump, 16 days after Mr. Khashoggi was murdered by the Saudis in Turkey and his body dismembered and vanished, 16 days after that happened, without notifying Congress, And with virtually no mention to anybody, Donald Trump authorized the transfer of top-secret nuclear technology to the Saudis. This should be a serious issue. Tim Kaine, the senator from Virginia, is raising hell about it because Khashoggi lived in Virginia. But I think everybody in Congress should be raising hell about this. And when you back this up with this new report out from ProPublica that the Saudis were involved in 9-11, so you can check that out over at TomHartman.com it gets real interesting. And welcome back. Oh, man, there, there is something bad going on in Trump land. Brad Parscale, the uh, campaign manager that just got replaced a few months ago after the Lincoln Project, came out with an ad about how Brad Parscale seems to be getting quite rich handling all of the hundreds of millions of dollars that are going through the Trump campaign bought himself a new boat, bought himself a new house, bought himself a new condo, bought himself a fancy new car and uh, over the weekend his wife called the police, the police showed up, quote, witnessed bruising on Candace Parcell's arm and face. She told him that the injuries had come from Bradley Parscale although earlier in the week, so apparently he's beating his wife uh, on more than one occasion. And a police officer who's a friend of his showed up and talked him down, but God only knows what's going on there. I mean, why do people threaten to kill themselves? Well, usually because they're imagining a future that's so dire and terrible that they don't think they can handle it. What's that future? Is it that Trump's trying to get the money back? Is it that Pascal is looking at going to prison for fraud? in the ways that he handled the Trump campaign money. I mean, you know, they're, they're looking at that with regard to the inauguration. But this is what Tim Miller, who is the former spokesperson for the Republican National Committee, the RNC's official mouthpiece, during the Trump administration. This is the RNC's official mouthpiece, formerly. He's no longer there. He's in quote, for most of the past 15 years, while he was living a life of luxury that most Americans can only dream of, he was racked with massive debts and paying no income tax thanks to business write-offs on flamboyant haircuts, consulting fees paid to his daughter, and a summer retreat where his large adult sons liked to ride ATVs and laugh at the poor suckers who had to mow the lawn. It was part and parcel of the broader so-called economic populism bill of goods that Trump and sloppy Steve Bannon, his pit-stained, triplicate-shirted faux-everyman-muse sold the American people. They were going to raise taxes on the wealthy, take on Jeb and Ted and Hillary's Wall Street cronies, and finally build a wall on the border making Mexico pay. None of this, of course, was true. There was no economic populist agenda. Trump's presidency was actually a boon to the wealthy. He says it was a face-saving ruse that's all it ever was a story for the rubes he says many of us knew it was all a lie back then but the last four years have revealed it time and time again and the tax returns are the final reveal that proves the case the rnc spokesman and then there's this interesting little thing on his uh, march 13 2013 statement now he, normally he Trump always puts together his statements of of worth on June 30th. I don't know if he's got a a fiscal year that ends then or something like that, but they're always done on June 30th. But in this one year, 2013, all of a sudden, he created a statement of net worth on March 31st. And so uh, Monster is writing this uh, over at Daily Kos. The headline is, looks like there's an answer to the $4 billion question on Trump's finances. Smells like mortgage fraud. And he says that $4 billion accounted, what Trump said was in his statement of of wealth, he said, I have a brand value that is worth $4 billion. Now, he'd not said that before, but suddenly he just invents $4 billion out of thin air and says, ta-da! And then he takes out a $100 million mortgage on Trump Tower. And then (laughs) he's got loans on commercial real estate in New York in 2012 that were under 250 million dollars but suddenly it jumps 100 million dollars up 322 million dollars why is that well it looks like he's broke and he's borrowing money to sustain his lifestyle and thus the four million dollars in brand value well you know inflating brand value making money up from nowhere is called mortgage fraud another reason that he has to win the election or he goes to jail right and he might still go to jail the Department of Justice, and there's no law that says you can't prosecute a sitting president. It's DOJ policy. So federal prosecutors don't do it, but it's not the policy of New York State. There's no law that prevents it. Lindsey Graham over the weekend said that uh, the election will be decided in the courts. In other words, the Supreme Court. And so, you know, get ready for handmaiden Amy. I, it, actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get into this right after the break because there's a fair amount of stuff here and we will go through that. One other story that I think is worth noting real quickly just before I hit a break here is uh, Robert Redfield, the director of the Centers for Disease Control, was on an airplane out of Atlanta and there was a reporter sitting behind him. He was having a phone conversation with somebody and he was telling them that the quote was everything he says is false that this uh, scott atlas guy this radiologist that trump brought from fox news into the white house to basically head up the coronavirus task force scott atlas who says that we should open everything up like they're doing in florida get as many people infected as possible and have herd immunity it means a minimum of six million dead americans but he thinks that's the way to do it Right. So that Trump doesn't have to get involved in stuff like messy stuff like testing and contact tracing. Redfield says everything he says is false. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Redfield says he's been questioning the efficacy of masks, whether young people are susceptible to the virus, herd immunity. Redfield is pretty flipped out, apparently. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com/hartman with two ends or enter the code hartman with two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two ends, or enter the code Hartman, the two ends before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman.
5: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole?
0: On the science revolution this week, Trump never noticed a modern-day American disaster. He's trying to spread the virus as far and wide as possible. We should call this today what history will call it when it looks back on this moment, genocide. David Kraft with the Nuclear Energy Information Service is here. It's time to end Exelon's nuclear hostage crisis. Climate risks are compounding financial challenges for Midwest nuclear plants. Plus, Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist II of Michigan drops by to explain that racism is a public health crisis. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. And welcome back, Tom Hartman, here with you boy, what an amazing news week. And I will be getting to your calls in a little bit here, but I want to run through this stuff that has to do with the Supreme Court nominee as well and reiterate the principal question, which is Trump is broke, right? We all know it. It's obvious now Donald Trump is broke and hundreds of millions of dollars in debt And it's unlikely that given that most of his properties are in the, broadly speaking, in the travel and entertainment business, which is in the crapper right now, it's extremely unlikely he could sell these things. I mean, his his kids floated a trial balloon about selling the Washington, D.C. hotel, what was that, last year, toward the end of last year? And no buyers, no interest. Nobody, I mean, who, who who wants to take over a hotel right now? The whole industry is a disaster. So has he already sold out America to get the money he needs? Or is he getting ready to sell out America? Is the illegal arms shipments to Saudi Arabia that they've been using to bomb the crap out of Yemen against the will of Congress, is that how he is selling out American interests? Or is it you know, uh, validating any and everything that uh, that Russia does. Is that how he's selling out American interests? Or is it, you know, tipping his hat 16 ways to Benjamin Netanyahu or to Mohammed bin Salman or to, you know, fill in the blanks, right? He got a million bucks last year out of Turkey. And the president of Turkey, uh, you know, Erdogan calls him up and says, hey, stab the Kurds in the back for me, would you please? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, yes. And now we've got a bunch of dead Kurds and we've got a million Kurdish refugees, or I, frankly, I don't know the number, but it's, it's a large number of Kurdish refugees there on the, on the Syrian uh, Iraqi border. But, you know, we just don't know how badly he has sold us out in exchange for keeping his little empire afloat. And then, you know, we also learn early on in his campaign, he was pushing really hard for Ivanka to be his VP. This is amazing. This is in the Washington Post today. Rosalind Halberman, June 2016. He says, I think it should be Ivanka. What about Ivanka as my VP? She's bright, she's smart, she's beautiful. People will love her. She was 34 years old, by the way. You got to be 35 to be president, but there's nothing for a VP. He brought the idea repeatedly up over the following weeks. He was so taken with the concept that his team did polls on Ivanka as VP twice to satisfy crazy Donald. Ivanka finally ended the conversation, going to her dad and saying, "No, we're not going to do this." Oh man. Okay, let's talk Supreme Court for just a minute here. Binky Brain posted this on Facebook, and it's gotten around Facebook, and it's gotten around Twitter, and or pieces of it. I've seen it on several other websites. I believe that uh, this. I believe it popped up on DU over the weekend. This is from uh, user Binky Brain, right? My wife has cancer. It took five months to wipe out 20 years of life savings, and that was with insurance. The experience has turned me into a bitter person. We did everything we were told. We went to college, got degrees, avoided credit card debt, spent wisely, saved a nice chunk of money in savings accounts and retirement accounts, and minded our own business. The USA healthcare system took all of our savings and our retirement, and forced us to refinance our house so that we lost 15 years of equity. This is the country I'm supposed to be proud of. I hate this system and anyone that defends it. So an entire lifetime of saving and work wiped out because somebody got sick. Once again, that's something that happens to the point of bankruptcy on the neighborhood of a half a million times a year in the United States. The number of times that happens in any European country is zero. The number of times that happens in Canada is zero. Pick your developed country South Korea, Taiwan, I, in Japan, zero. Only in America does that happen. And now Donald Trump is proposing to put Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court, a woman who wrote an article condemning John Roberts for allowing Obamacare to continue to exist. The one last f- thin, fragile little reed of protection we've got against having a pre-existing condition like, hey, you had COVID and now you have heart disease. What are you going to do with that? Well, that COVID's a pre-existing condition. Sorry, we're not going to do anything about it. That's where we may well be in about four months when the Supreme Court finally rules on the, on the oral arguments that they're going to hear in November. And if she's on the case, number one, and this is going to be the principal message, by the way, from the Democrats in the Biden campaign. Handmaiden Amy wants to take away your health insurance. But the logic that she uses to justify taking away health insurance, that it's not, that there was no such thing when the founders wrote the Constitution, therefore, as an originalist, it shouldn't exist that's the same logic that that the supreme court was preparing to apply in 1937 to social security and that you can bet your bottom dollar that at least this person but now we've got we will have six originalists or five originalists and a and a textualist on the court there's not much. To, it's all a scam. These are, you know, the originalists say, I can read the mind of the founders. Well, I'm sorry. The, the founders were all over the map. There were conservatives. There were liberals. They had, you know, it, the Constitution is a giant compromise. But I can read the mind of the, of the founders. That's the originalists. She's, that's her scam. And then the, the one that Neil Gorsuch does, the textualist, I only make decisions based on what the words say and what they meant back in the 1700s. This is all BS, right? But that's that's what they're going to do, number one. Number two, Donald Trump is all flipped out about how he needs Amy Coney Bryant, handmaiden Amy, on, and I call her that because she's a member of a, of a cult in her church, in the Catholic Church, that up until uh, Margaret Atwood's book came out called the women in this cult handmaidens, and the men were referred to as heads as in head of family presumably i mean just imagine if donald trump had appointed say a devout muslim woman who said that her job was to bring islam to the world and to the american and to american law that that the legal profession her work in the legal profession was to bring about the kingdom of now Handmaid Nehemi said the kingdom of God, but what if she had said the kingdom of Allah? If she was a member of an extremist Muslim cult that demanded complete obedience to your husband and that called you a handmaiden. If she had taught in a madrasa. Really? But the other problem that I have, in addition to her... The originalist scam and the, the bleeding over of her Catholicism into her law, and, and, and not general Catholicism, although this is the official position of the Catholic Church to be opposed to abortion, but this particular hardcore right-wing Catholicism, which has been rejected by mo- the majority of Catholics. But not just that, but the uh, final thing that really flips me out about her is that she will be the third person on this court who worked on Bush v. Gore. Bush v. Gore was a plan put together to steal the, Supreme, to, to steal the, the presidency in 2000 using the Supreme Court. And a group of lawyers convened down in Florida to figure out how to argue this case. And among them, was John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh. Well, now we learn that a third member of that group was Amy Coney Barrett. She worked on Bush v. Gore. So she was one of the conspirators who handed the election of 2000 off to George W. Bush. So we will now, out of nine members of the court, three of them will be people who worked to steal the election of 2000 for a Republican Could that have something to do with why Donald Trump thinks if she gets on the court, he gets the White House for another four years? I think so. And that doesn't even begin to dig into some of her decisions, which are just mind boggling. You know, she's she actually uh, I was going to say it was a ruling. It wasn't a ruling. It was an appeal. But she actually took the position that separate but equal is fine. You're listening to Tom Hartman.
2: Visit TomHartman.com for
0: audio and video archives. I mean, these people don't want to take us back to 1920. They want to take us back to 1896. We'll pick up your phone calls. Anyways. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com
6: slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
0: Today we're reading from The Constitution Today by Akil Reed Amar. It's a collection of essays. This is from his essays on the judiciary. This was originally published on Find Law in 2002. It's titled More on Unfree Speech. The Supreme Court prohibits network television cameras and radio microphones from its public oral arguments. Transcripts of the back and forth between attorneys and the justices are not posted on the court's website until weeks have passed and the public's interest has waned. Members of the public may not even take notes in the gallery about what is being said in open court. Meanwhile, in its opinions, the court trumpets the importance of free speech and a free press. On the topic of free expression, why doesn't the Supreme Court practice what it preaches? That was the question Steve Calabresi and I recently posed in an op-ed in the New York Times, marking the opening of the Supreme Court's term earlier this month. Here I'll expand on the court's reluctance to welcome the First Amendment into its own courtroom. The First Amendment is the darling of the current court. Though sharply divided on many other issues, justices across the spectrum agree that free expression rights should be construed broadly. But the court's love affair with that First Amendment is a relatively modern development. Less than a decade after the adoption of the Bill of Rights, circuit-riding justices enthusiastically enforced a 1798 sedition law that made it a federal offense to criticize the president. Early in the 20th century, the court upheld punishment of a newspaper publisher, for editorializing against state judges. During World War I, the justices sent Eugene Debs, a notable presidential candidate, to prison for peacefully criticizing the government. Indeed, before 1925, the court had never, not once, used free expression principles to invalidate government censorship, even as it routinely construed property rights broadly to invalidate economic regulation. Today's justices have repudiated this regressive legacy the residue of the early court's indifference to free expression remains visible in the court building itself as the aforementioned rules and practices indicate perhaps these court rules and practices do not literally abridge freedom of speech or of the press but if not they sure come close after all the apparent purpose of these rules is precisely to limit free expression and free thought consider the ruling again the rule against note-taking a person in the courtroom can clean his wallet or twiddle his thumbs or tug his earlobe or engaged in countless other mindless activities, but is prohibited from engaging in the cognitive and expressive activity of writing down what he hears the justices saying, along with his own comments or questions or criticisms. Consider also the rule against the media's cameras. The court's rules do not bar security cameras in the courtroom, and such cameras may well be in the room, for all we know. What the justices are banning is thus not cameras per se, but network television cameras cameras that might broadcast information about the court to the American public. The harms that these rules seek to prevent are harms that pivot on the acts of thought and expression themselves. And these are the very sorts of harms the government typically may not seek to prevent under the Supreme Court's standard First Amendment case law. To put the point another way, no Supreme Court rule bars carrying a pencil into the courtroom or wearing a chopstick in one's hairdo The ban is not based on security concerns, but is rather directly aimed at expressive activity per se, using one's pencil to take notes. More generally, one of the core purposes of the First Amendment is to protect a robust and timely public discourse about government officials and government decision making, including, of course, judicial officials and judicial officials' decisions. But that discourse is precisely what is dampened by the court's own rule about its own building. This is especially so because the day of oral argument is one of the two days, the other being when the final Supreme Court decision is announced, that the American public and the American media are most likely to focus on a given legal case. If discourse that day is dampened, the public has lost a unique and irreplaceable occasion for democratic discussion and deliberation. When it comes to other government arenas, post offices, airports, school grounds, and so on, the court has typically insisted that such forums allow as much speech as is functionally compatible with the basic purpose of the arena. Yet in its own building, the court represses expressive activity without any strong showing of incompatibility or disruption. There is a word for this, and it is spelled H-Y-P-O-C-R-I-S-Y, hypocrisy. The court's transcript policies are also unfree in another sense, In the days after oral argument, the transcripts are anything but free. The court gives a temporary monopoly to a private company, which in turn charges high fees for transcripts. The court would never, nowadays at least, give a private company a monopoly over its written opinions. Why should its oral arguments be treated any differently? There's nothing secret or confidential about oral arguments. Unlike judicial conferences where justices deliberate privately among themselves, oral arguments take place in open court. They are public events conducted by public servants with public money. The public deserves full access. To recast the point in the language of federalism, Americans outside the Beltway deserve electronic access comparable to the ability of those who live in Washington, D.C., Virginia, and Maryland to attend arguments in person. If television cameras are not acceptable, at a minimum, the arguments should be carried live on public radio, as happened in December 2000 for Bush v. Gore, and transcripts should be freely available immediately book is The Constitution Today by Akhil Reed Amar. Well, this is fascinating. The uh, CIA and the FBI both notified America, and they had notified the Senate Intelligence Committee and the Senate Homeland Security Committee. The Homeland Security Committee is uh, chaired by Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, I believe, or it's a committee that has very similar power that there was a Ukrainian oligarch who was channeling information from Russian intelligence into the United States for the purposes of harming Joe Biden. And that intelligence had to do, by and large, with Hunter Biden. And it really wasn't intelligence. It was just innuendo and smears and things like this. Ron Johnson released his report... This 87 page report, the headline in in the papers in Wisconsin was, uh, you know, Ron Johnson's report finds no evidence that, uh, you know, that uh, Joe Biden did anything wrong. And that's basically what the report does conclude. You know, there is no specific, oh, here's what he did wrong. Instead, it's like, well, if this happened and that happened, then maybe this was going on. And it turns out that most of the information that uh, Ron Johnson has been passing along has been coming straight out of Russian intelligence. In fact, the, the CIA and the FBI have even identified the person who is passing it along to Senator Johnson. Which, if I lived in Wisconsin, would you know raise a lot of flags for me. I mean, you know, what what the hell is going on with this? But it also raises the question, you know, as this thing you know, Hunter Biden, to the extent that Republicans can succeed, and they're trying really hard over on Fox News and on right-wing hate radio, it's all Hunter Biden all the time. To the extent that they can use this to smear Joe Biden, you know, how should Joe respond? Or, you know, how should we reply? I had a guy call and he was like, well, you know, Hunter Biden, And, you know, this company in China and Hunter Biden this and Hunter Biden that. And at that time, you know, basically what I said was, well, you know, if there's something wrong there, let's have an investigation. But, you know, I'm not seeing anything wrong here. I'm I'm seeing something embarrassing, something that doesn't look good. Hunter Biden shouldn't have taken that position. I don't think he would have gotten that position if his dad wasn't VP. And he has as much as said that. But that doesn't mean that he did something illegal. It means he did something stupid. But... That's a very different thing, I think, from Don Jr. and Eric and Ivanka, or at least Don Jr. and Eric, we have on the record, bragging to the media that their company is supported by money from Russian criminals, Russian oligarchs. I mean, they're bragging about it. It doesn't have anything to do with, you know, I mean, you know, Eric Trump has been ordered to testify in an investigation before the election. I think it was October 8th uh, that he has to testify in New York about criminal fraud in their accounting practices, that they have been engaging in tax fraud and bank fraud for years, inflating their assets when they're asking for loans, deflating the value of their assets when they're paying their taxes. That's against the law. That's what John Dillinger went to prison for. And that's why Donald Trump, who is losing the election right now, every poll shows Donald Trump is losing the election and losing massively. And that's why Donald Trump is saying, I'm not even going to count the votes. We shouldn't count these mail-in ballots. We shouldn't count these votes here. We should have the states just give the electoral college to me. We should have a continuation rather than a peaceful transfer of power. The reason he's saying all these things, the reason he's got us all running around chasing our tails is because he knows he's losing the election. And if he loses the election, he's going to go to prison. And his kids may too, because they have been involved in crimes that have been laid out in the pages of our nation's newspapers. The New York Times did a, a four or five part investigation that I believe won them the Pulitzer Prize a couple of years ago. This is what got Mary Trump all activated. She didn't realize that her Uncle Don had ripped off her dad and she I mean she knew something hinky was going on but she didn't know what it was and the New York Times laid it out and they said oh here's the deal you know he told the American public when he was running for president that he got a one million dollar loan from his dad well that was a lie he took over 400 million dollars from his father's estate which would be you know in today's money a couple billion dollars at least a billion dollars he took over 400 million dollars fraudulently He ripped off his own brother and his kids are continuing the grift. I mean, you know, I think if anybody mentions Hunter Biden, it's a great opportunity to talk about all three of the Trump children were ordered by a court to take court ordered training about how not to commit fraud with a nonprofit organization because of the Trump Foundation. And I think that they're stinging from that because Donald Trump has apparently ordered Bill Barr to order John Durham, the guy who's trying to find dirt on Democrats right now, to look into the Clinton Foundation. This is the latest thing that the Trump administration is doing. Let's investigate the Clinton Foundation. There's got to be something there, right? Well, I, you know, I hate to tell you, but they did this in 2016 when Hillary Clinton was running for president. Congress investigated the Clinton Foundation and they found nothing. It's well run. But, hey, that never stopped Bill Barr before. It's probably not going to stop John Durham. What we're seeing here is that the Justice Department has been turned into the punish your enemies, help your friends department. That's not America. That's not a republic. That's how a dictatorship is running. Not a republic. In a republic, things are done by the rule of law. What is good for one person is good for all. What hurts one person hurts all. The rules apply across the board. That is not what's going on here. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Speaking the truth, the billionaires and multinational corporations, or at least the right-wing billionaires, would really rather you didn't know all about we have a special video up over at tomharman.com and it's about how a letter that the IRS sent out to 3.9 million Americans saved 700 lives. And you're like, oh, wait a minute, the IRS saved 700 lives? How did that happen? Well, it has to do with Obamacare, and it's a fascinating story. And it turns out that this analysis of this IRS mailing was actually the first time that the federal government has done a study that actually proved that people having access to health care produces fewer deaths. For every 1,648 people who got the letter, there was one fewer premature death. I'll explain the whole thing in the video. As I said, it's available over at TomHartman.com, and it is really worth checking out for a national health care system.
2: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
0: Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, Norma, what's up?
7: Well, first, uh, real quick, you were talking about how the Republicans take one little piece of information and turn it into a big deal. We have an uh, election here for trying to keep Doug Jones in the Senate. His opponent, Tommy Tuberville, is running an ad that Doug Jones will... Increase taxes all by himself so that we can pay for abortions. That's the ad that Tommy Tupperwell is speaking on TV. Really? Really, yes. As if, you know, Doug Jones is in charge of the Senate. But anyway, the election. Can we somehow or another get some kind of law or legislation passed that every ballot will be counted before there is an announcement of who won. This is not a football game. This is our life. This is the Constitution at risk. This is our country at risk. And we need some way to make sure that we can have enough watchers from both parties stand there and watch these ballots be counted so there can't be any screaming of fake news or fraud. We need to have this done in every state, some way, somehow, so that we can prove that Trump did not win. And I don't know, you know, I'm quite willing to volunteer to stand there and watch, you know? I don't care how long it takes. Mm-hmm. But we need enough people to be able to stand there and watch this counting of the ballots all over the country in every precinct so that there cannot be f- screams of fraud. And if Trump loses in front of these Trump people, they can't say we cheated. That would put a stop
6: to There us. are,
0: go ahead.
7: That, you know, if we have enough Trump people standing there and they watch him lose, they can't stand there and scream fraud, you know. Oh, they, they certainly in. can,
0: and they will. But you know, to your point, Norma, there are tens of thousands of people who have volunteered to be poll watchers, which includes watching the county of the ballots, particularly the paper ballots, the mail-in ballots, and things like that. Just contact your local Democratic Party, and they will tell you who in your precinct or who in your secretary of state's office, if you do want to volunteer but there are people doing that all over the country we need more of it in terms of legislation no there's no chance mitch mcconnell won't even allow hr one to get through which was passed back two years ago which would have uh, actually provided for this It, it provided a lot of money for election security and election monitors the republicans in the senate are hoping that this is a stolen election. They are hoping that foreign governments will interfere in this election. Ron Johnson, the senator from Wisconsin, is actively participating with the Russians and Ukrainian billionaire oligarchs to help try to turn the election toward Donald Trump. It's breathtaking. It's mind-boggling. And Trump has said if he if he wins another term, first thing he's going to do is destroy Social Security. And by the way, uh, the Supreme Court might help him. You know, even before that, destroy the Affordable Care Act.
7: You know, when they destroy Social Security, I will be homeless. I will lose this house because that is two-thirds yeah. of my income. And when I try to talk to these Trump people, they say I'm lying, that it's not true. They have never even heard the announcement that he'd signed that executive order to stop the contributions. They do not understand that these are international corporations that do not want to help American people when they retire, they want us to work for nothing, and they want no obligations for anything. It's like destroying the health care, the, the Affordable Care Act, so that they are not even—they can have more money, but we have nothing. They've taken, in the past 40 years, close to $50 trillion out of this country, and that's why they have dis- how they have destroyed the United States middle class. We don't have one anymore. They just want rich people yeah. and poor people who will obey.
0: I'm completely with you, Norma. Again, sadly, with regard to the legislation, there's nothing that can be done. But all of us, every single person listening to me right now has the ability to contact your local Democratic Party and say, how can I help out? And I don't want to leave the House because I'm in a high risk group, but I can do things from home. Or, hey, I'm a healthy 30 year old and I'm not quite all that concerned. So I will show up, although I will wear a mask and take care and things like that. I mean, there's a lot that can be done. Norma, thank you for the call. Kat in Independence, Oregon. Uh, to this uh, issue, I think you want to speak, Kat.
4: I do, actually. I, uh, I want to say to Lorna not to give up, not to feel that we're defeated. I am of limited abilities, retired, not very wealthy at all. And I have found ways to help. And one of them is uh, postcards to swing states. It's from Indivisible. And they sent me 200 postcards, and I fill them out to voters in Texas, and they're doing all the swing states. I write this, and then I supply the stamp, which I talk my daughter into covering the stamps because that's too much for me. But she's feeling like she's involved. She's getting more involved with people she knows because of this. Here in Independence, little town, uh, and we have a protest every day from 4.30 to 5.30 on a main intersection, uh, uh, Highway 91, and rain or shine, except for when the smoke was so bad. We backed off for a couple of days there. But every day, and we plan to do this until we don't need to do it anymore. And it's a Black Lives Matter protest, of course. But I have a science as a vote. <laughs> anyway, yeah. uh, one other thing is um, I call Congress all the time. And let them know what I'm thinking. Sometimes it's not so polite. Uh, I try to be respectful. And uh, I'm lucky because I moved to Oregon from Utah, and I still have their area code. And so I get to call my liberal congresspeople as well as Mitt Romney and Mike Lee.
0: And Hmm. I'm re-balled the right act. Very interesting. I'm done. Well, Kat, that's absolutely great. And how did you learn about indivisible.org, and what led well, you to contact I'm them actually. and say yes? I'll.
4: You told me they were one of the best places to go to help, and I did, and then I got hooked up.
0: There's yeah, lots. and they really are. Yeah, indivisible was put together back four years ago by a bunch of people who had worked on the Obama campaign, you know, who really understand how politics works in the United States, and none of this mealy mouth, let's complain stuff, but, you know, let's actually take action. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the call. Denise in Chicago. Hey, Denise, what's up?
4: Hey, Tom. I watched the new HBO documentary Agents of Chaos last night and mm-hmm. was just blown away by the alignment of the Trump-Putin relationship and exactly how he did it. Going back to the 2013-14 Ukrainian situation of Yukonovich and you know, they lost their sovereignty of being able to go to Europe and blah, blah, blah. Putin did the same thing with the disinformation campaign, but they do such an excellent yep. job in very simple terms to lay that all out. And if people watch it, I think could become more educated, you know, with with a simpler. It's very straightforward. Do you agree? or I, what, are you, what are your thoughts? I just thought it was compelling and chilling
0: and so spot on. I do. I absolutely do. And Putin and the Russian government have gotten very good at this. They're not alone in this. The Saudis are funding this kind of stuff. The UAE is funding this kind of stuff. There's some right-wing billionaires in Israel who are funding these these kinds of things. These are the folks that are popping up all over the place. But yeah, the majority of it coming out of Russia. I haven't seen the HBO Agents of Chaos. I'm going to write it down during the break here, Denise. Thank you for that. I'll check it out. Maybe Louise and I can watch it this weekend. Thank you so much. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Code Red by E.J. Dion Jr. It's How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. This is from the introduction titled The Opportunity We Dare Not Miss. Will progressives and moderates feud while America burns? Or will these natural allies take advantage of a historic opportunity to strengthen American democracy and defeat an increasingly radical form of conservatism? The choice is in our politics is just that stark. This book is offered in a spirit of hope, but with a sense of alarm. My hope is inspired by the broad and principled opposition that Donald Trump's presidency called forth. It is a movement that can and should be the driving force in our politics long after Trump is gone. His abuses of office, his his divisiveness, his bigotry, his autocratic habits, and his utter lack of seriousness about the responsibilities of the presidency drew millions of previously disengaged citizens to the public square and the ballot box. The danger he represented inspired young Americans to participate in our public life at unprecedented levels tens of thousands of americans especially women have gathered in libraries diners and church basements to share wisdom to organize and in many cases to run for office themselves these newly engaged citizens have created an opportunity to build a broad alliance for practical and visionary government as promising as anything since the great depression gave franklin roosevelt the chance to build the new deal coalition to seize this opening progressives and moderates must realize that they are allies who have more in common than they sometimes wish to admit they share a commitment to what public life can achieve and the hope that government can be decent again they reject the appeals to racism that have been trump's calling card and the divisiveness at the heart of his electoral strategy together they long for a politics focused on freedom fairness and the future this new politics would be rooted in the economic justice that has always been the left's driving goal and in the problem solving approach to government that moderates have long championed. It's true that these camps often battle over whether the nation should seek restoration or transformation in the years after Trump. In fact, our country needs both. To restore the democratic norms we have always valued, we must begin to heal the social and economic wounds that led to Trump's presidency in the first place. Yet there is resistance to common ground among progressives and moderates alike. They often mistrust each other's motives, battle fiercely over tactics, argue over how much change our country needs and squabble over whether specific policy ideas go too far or not far enough the moderate says hey progressive you think that if you just lay out the boldest and most ambitious approach to any given problem that people will rally to your side really for one thing people may like your objective but think you're changing things way more than we have to and we can battle to the death over say a democratic party platform plank or the first draft of a bill But without the hard negotiating and compromising that legislative politics requires, a bold idea will remain just a platform plank. That really doesn't do anyone any good. You subject everyone to so many litmus tests that we might as well be in chemistry class. And God save us from your abuse on Twitter if we disagree with you. You lefties have no idea how to win elections outside of Berkeley or Brooklyn, and some of your ideas are so sweeping that they'll scare potential voters away. At this point, the moderate is likely to wield the sturdy old punchline Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. But hold on, says the progressive. You moderates spend so much time negotiating with yourselves that you compromise away goals and priorities before the real battle even begins. Your ideas get so soggy and complicated that they mobilize no one and mostly put people to sleep. Better to have the courage of your convictions. Lay out your hopes plainly and passionately and inspire voters to join in. Besides, you middle-of-the-roaders were so petrified of Ronald Reagan and the right wing that you caved into the Gipper's economic ideas, let inequality run wild, and gave us a racist and grossly unfair criminal justice system. The extremists have pulled the political center so far right that the only way to back to sanity is to show our fellow citizens what a real progressive program looks like. At the risk of sounding like a perhaps unwelcome counselor attempting to ease a family quarrel, I would plead with moderates and progressives to listen to each other carefully. If the events since 2016 do not teach moderates and progressives that they must find ways of working together, nothing will. If they fail to heed each other's advice and take each other's concerns seriously, they will surrender the political system to an increasingly undemocratic right with no interest in any of their shared goals, priorities, and commitments. Moderates are right about the complexity of getting things done in a democracy. Even when the boldest ideas have prevailed, they did so because complex coalitions were built. Important, and it should be said, often legitimate interests were accommodated, and some lesser goals were left by the wayside to be fought for another day. Moderates are also right that democracy requires persuading those who are open to change but worry about how this or that reform might work in practice or affect them personally. Think losing their private health insurance. Disdaining as sellouts those who raise inconvenient questions or express qualms is not the way to build a majority for reform. Moderates are also right that Americans in large number are tired of politics that involves more yelling than dialogue, more demonizing than understanding. But progressives are right to say that for the last three decades, moderates have spent too much time negotiating with themselves. Consider all the effort Democrats put into wooing Republicans by responding to their proposals to amend Obamacare. The book, Code Red, by E.J. Dion Jr. Julie in Auburn, Washington. Hey, Julie, what's up? Hi, thanks for taking my call. So just like
7: Clinton said, this uh, keep it simple, it's about the election. Trump mm-hmm. supporters, the only thing that resonates with them is race and holding on with a tight fist, whatever last vestiges of white privilege that they have. And they don't care about Russia. They don't care about his taxes. They don't care about the Supreme Court. They don't care about health care. They don't even care about COVID. They just care about Trump, the white supremacist, getting reelected.
0: And it just yeah, and I, think my that's, mind. I think that's solidly half, and it might even be three quarters or seven eighths of the uh, white people, particularly the white men, but, you know, white men have no monopoly on being racist relative to white women, of his base. The question is, yes. how do you address that, Julie? We have 30 seconds. Do you have a suggestion? What would you say to somebody who who uh, actually believes in white supremacy?
7: You can't. You can't. The only thing we can yeah. do is mobilize the other side and flood and get him out because they were yeah. they were hushed you know for decades and then he came out and he gave them a spotlight and he's like it's and, now
0: and now they're all over the yeah, place
7: and now they're all over the place i'm
0: with they're you they're julie they're i gotta run but i'm absolutely with you. the one thing i would say though is that you can educate their children and this is what trump is trying to stop he doesn't want us teaching the history of slavery in our schools but we can educate all of our children, which would include the children of the the white racists, and I think that would go a long step. So, anyhow, thanks for being with us. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it, we'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. Have a great afternoon.
2: You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.